Greetings from the humongous. Rhodes? Where we're going, we don't need Rhodes. News on the mark. Mank. 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 It's terrific. Yes, but is Gary Oldman too old for the role? I heard it's Finch's best picture. And still another opinion. Hey, welcome back to Film Driven. I'm Steve Haskett. And I'm Andre Shane. And uh, here we are, Steve, in an unusual move for Film Driven, where we interrupt our normally scheduled salute to the films of the 1980 to bring you this special episode revolving around the movie Mank. A, sal- a salute to the films of the 1940s. That's right. We jump back 40 years in a complete non sequitur from the 80s. Mank has uh, absolutely nothing to do with the 80s. Am I right, Steve? Unless, unless I'm mistaken, it wasn't even written in the 80s yet. So, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Yes, I think uh, pretty much no connection to the 80s whatsoever. But a major connection to films. Because here, Mank is a film kind of about making films, right? So, uh, here we are talking about Mank. Why do you feel Steve Mank is an important film to discuss at this point? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it's directed by David Fincher, who's a, uh, a major current American director, a director I know you and I both enjoyed at least some of his movies. Uh, it is certainly in this weird COVID year positioned as a, uh, in quotes, important movie, uh, an Oscar hopeful, and a movie that had been very hotly anticipated. That, uh, you know, I, I've heard about this movie for a long time. It's actually the first movie Fincher's directed in, I think, like six years or something. He made a bunch of TV, but it's been a long time since there's been a Fincher motion picture. It's a script uh, by his late father. And, um, yeah, so there's all sorts of things that you can see why Mank was on a lot of film lovers radars including your and mine and it's finally here uh we both saw it and uh kind of what andre this goes back to the origin of our podcast where you know you and i we met in a professional context and then we quickly realized we both loved movies and would discuss movies a lot and this is a similar thing where i texted you like hey have you seen mank and you're like yeah i have and then we started exchanging texts we're like well maybe we should just uh record our thoughts for posterity so somewhere down the line maybe our sons can make a movie about about this podcast <laughs> that would be fantastic steve just so exciting i am sitting in a very cinematic setting right now and because we're not driving as we normally are for our podcast uh i am taking the liberty of drinking so i hope you don't mind i don't know if you have a cocktail in front of you i might get uh, one I later yeah but... uh well you know i think it's appropriate talking uh about Mank to be drinking because uh, uh, the subject of the film, Herman J. Mankiewicz, the writer of Citizen Kane and Wizard of Oz, uh, was, of course, a hardcore alcoholic. So drinking in the early afternoon was certainly no stranger to Mank. Uh, and uh, the movie certainly makes a large point of his habits. Uh, but uh, is Mank an important film, Steve, or is Mank just kind of a footnote to a greater movie that it's about which is of course citizen kane in this case yeah well i 
I think Mank wanted to be an important movie, but uh, I think it's not going to go down as one. So, uh, I mean, to cut to the chase, unlike the movie Mank, uh, <laughs> uh, I wasn't a, a big fan of this movie for a bunch of reasons we'll get into. But, uh, no, it I, I don't think it's going to be very fondly remembered at all. Um, it is on some – it's on a fair amount of, like, year's best list I've encountered, which kind of blows my mind. But I will say that uh, – you know, my reaction to Mank is not alone. I've also seen some fairly negative reviews of Mank, so I don't feel like I'm completely crazy in my assessment of it. Um, you know, it's a very strange movie. It is, you know, obviously Herman Mankiewicz is the main character, and it is all centered around him writing Citizen Kane. Uh, and that said, I was actually kind of disappointed in how much, like how little it had to do with the making of the movie. I mean, uh, the the movie certainly details a lot of incidents and in Herman Mankiewicz's life that it implies funneled into his writing of Citizen Kane. Uh, but then I, I was really surprised at how the movie almost ends with the delivery of the screenplay so that anything about the actual shooting of Citizen Kane is not part of this movie at all. And I guess that makes sense that the movie is about the screenwriter, but it's very weird to me that Citizen Kane, you know, one of the most revered and discussed and analyzed movies of all time. I mean, I don't know anyone who's like Citizen Kane. It's only a screenplay and everything else is secondary to the screenplay. So the idea that, like, you would not mention anything at all about, I don't know, anything after the delivery of the, you know, nothing about the shooting, nothing about the reception, the direction, the act, like, all of that is just not part of the movie at all, which I, I found that kind of weird. But it, Well, it, it is interesting, Steve. I mean, Citizen Kane is such a such a legendary film and and let's be honest the making of citizen kane has kind of been covered it's 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 a little bit of an old ground there's been a lot of written about it a lot of great books actually and there's even been some films about the making of citizen kane in uh, 99 a movie called archeo 281 literally about the production of citizen kane came out and that movie starred Liv schreiber as uh, orson welles and it wasn't uh, a wasn't John Mankov John uh, Malkovich? Wasn't Malkovich played Mankovich? Am I correct on that? Yes, Malkovich played Mankovich, and uh, and uh, he played him very well. And uh, it was it was an all right film. I, I would say that movie lacked the cinematic uh, pretensions of Mank, uh, but uh, it did have some interesting. Uh, just kind of trivial things about the production of the film. Uh, and uh, it was an interesting watch. I remember enjoying it, but at no time was I thinking that, uh, you know, it was going to go down some kind of a classic. Uh, and of course, again, I'm talking about RKO 281 uh, from 1999. This film, Mank by David Fincher, does seem to have pretensions of, cinema with a capital C. And uh, I guess the question is, does it reach that potential? And in your opinion, it seems like it does not. Uh, and uh, am, am I hearing you correctly on this, Steve? You feel that Mank is a bit of a misfire. Yes, I think that's correct. I don't think it's worthless or anything. We'll go into its various faults. But no, I would, uh, you know, I, I gave it the equivalent of a two-star review in my head. 
I see what you're saying. I, I watched it a couple of times. I, I'd probably rank it a little bit higher than two stars, Steve. But you know, but ultimately, it's a footnote to Citizen Kane, and and I think, and I, you know, I always question when filmmakers of any pedigree set out to make a movie about the making of a movie that they will not really surpass in artistic accomplishment. You, you, you're not going to make a movie greater than Citizen Kane, especially when the subject matter is the making of Citizen Kane. So as a topic, as a subject matter, it seems like such an odd choice for David Fincher on the one hand, because obviously he's not going to make a movie that's better than Citizen Kane. So what's in it for him? And I think what's in it for him is a little bit of nostalgia because, of course, Mank was written, the screenplay to Mank was written by... Um, Fincher's uh, late father, Jack Fincher. And uh, what did you think of the screenplay? Like, did you enjoy the the dialogue? The, the Did you enjoy how it was structured? What, what are your thoughts on the screenplay itself to make? Well, I would argue the screenplay is one of the worst parts of the film, which I feel bad, you know, <laughs> I mean... Rest in peace to the late Mr. Fincher. I, you know, I don't know him. Maybe he was a lovely dad. He introduced his son to Susan Kane. Certainly, uh, you know, from everything I've read, Jack Fincher's love of movies set young David on a path that resulted in some movies I enjoy very much. But, um, you know, it's structured very weird. It has lots of flashbacks and it's, it, it has this gimmick where you will see on the screen almost like a screenplay, like printed on the screen, like what time it is, which is helpful. But, mm-hmm. I, the, one of the oddest things to me is there are a lot in this movie that seem to deal with the 1934 California race for governor. And right. specifically around that, the idea that the Republican leaning heads of studio started using some of the tools at their disposal, namely like, uh, you know, directors, screenwriters, actors to try and make some ads to get their candidate elected. Now, you could argue, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that what David Fincher was going for was how this ties into like modern times and, you know, what what's real, what isn't real and campaign advertising. But the thing is, these things are elusive. I, a history buff would have to tell me, Andre, but I really find it hard to believe that the 1934 California race for governor is the first time in history that anyone of any political party has fudged the truth a bit for their candidate. <laughs> like, I don't think that was the origin of that. And I also don't, I mean, like I didn't feel that it tied into modern politics any more than anything else does. You know, it's, I, uh, I didn't find it particularly like illuminating. And the biggest problem with the screenplay for me is that, you know, obviously in the movie Citizen Kane, the character of Kane is portrayed as someone who, you know, uses the powers of the press to, uh, you know, print up falsehoods that are to his benefit. You know, that's a factor, the corruption of the character of Kane. But so I suppose you're meant to you're supposed to take away from this that this 1934 race for governor and corruption and how that like that influenced Mankiewicz's thoughts when he was writing about the corruption of Kane. But the biggest thing to me about it that was the flaw is that Mankiewicz really didn't have anything to do with this race. He just observed things other people did. So I guess it's like, do we make a move? I mean, 
should we make a movie about me, Andre, and like the Senate race in Illinois last time because I watched TV and voted? I just don't. I mean, I, I, I get that he was around some of these studio heads and uh, producers who were doing things, but it's like he was such like in the movie, the character of Mank is such a passive observer of all this uh, political shenanigans that it, I just felt like, well, why? Why do I give a shit about Mank's opinion about this any more than like anybody else's opinion about that that race? Yeah, that that that's a very good point. I, I mean, yes, and Mank is definitely a you know kind of a almost non judgmental observer of what's going on, occasionally coming up with a pithy one liner about it. And I do have to say the getting back to the quality of the script, I, I you know I kind of agree with you that the. The, the structure of the script is a little scattershot and jumps forward and backwards in time, similar to the way Citizen Kane does it. But, you know, Citizen Kane did it back in the essentially late 30s when the movie was being produced. This is 2021, and this technique has been done a million times. So not only does it feel less than fresh, uh, it feels just downright derivative, like the movie's kind of referencing a movie made... I mean, shit, almost a hundred years ago, Steve, now, uh, and, and, uh, you know, the movie that did it better. And, and again, that seems like a big stumbling block, but what you're talking about, the specific plot point about the governor's race, first of all, I don't know how historically accurate Mank's feelings about that governor's race were. I don't know how historically accurate, um, mayor's feelings about the governor's race were. I think, I think current political, perspectives were kind of artificially implanted into this narrative uh and they don't particularly work very well they don't ring true they seem a little ham-fisted in my opinion and i i don't think like political posturing is uh fincher's best uh uh, best skill, to be absolutely honest with you, he's never really done it in past films. So I, I don't get, I don't get why he's wading into these waters now. Obviously, he's following his father's script, but I don't think it works particularly well. And honestly, it's done. I mean, the entire film is done to justify the fact that Herman J. Mankiewicz, who was the ultimate insider, right? I mean, he worked for the studio. He was literally on the payroll of William Randolph Hearst himself and was very friendly with Hearst and very friendly with his girlfriend, uh, Marion Davies at the time. And, uh, and then he wrote the script, which actually made all of these people who were in fact his friends and benefactors, he made all of them look like total assholes in the original script of Citizen Kane. And uh, this movie seems to try to justify why he did that. I mean, he it tried to put kind of a positive spin on the fact that he backstabbed his friends. Uh, and, uh, and that whole governor's race thing seems to be done. I mean, the, the whole governor's race thing seems to be in the film as a justification for the betrayal of his friends. And I'm not sure it works particularly well. I don't buy it. It seems like bullshit to me. It strikes me as false. Uh, and I think that's a big problem in the film. I felt like the movie was trying to do like four different things at the same time, but then didn't successfully do any of them. Like on one hand, there's this political angle and about, you know, like, how power can lie and uh, taking advantage of the people, you know, people who have money will be corrupt and uh, screw you over. There's the angle of uh, 
kind of the old arguments about how much credit for the genius of Citizen Kane should be attributed to Mankiewicz, you know, kind of arguing that like the screenplay certainly reflected things from Mankiewicz's life that would not be part of Wells's life. And then there's also, you know, as you touched on the element of the betrayal in some ways of his friendship with both Marion Davies and uh, William Randolph Hearst. And all of that stuff I just mentioned is in the movie, but none of them I felt were really developed like, it just felt like, yeah, they're all there, but none of them came to any sort of satisfying points or conclusions or indeed had really anything all that interesting to say. So it's just like a whole lot of these different stuff thrown together. And it's certainly it's you know, it's a stylistic exercise. Um, one of the, the, the ironic bits, Andre, to me is that for a movie that kind of is, you know, not the nicest towards Orson Welles and certainly makes Orson Welles seem secondary to uh, Mankiewicz here. If that's the case, mm-hmm, sure. So if that's the case, then why go to all the trouble to shoot a movie the way Orson Welles shot it? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more in that regard. I mean, you could ask many, many questions about the, you know, who really owns Citizen Kane. And this movie uh, takes, uh, well, it kind of takes a page from Pauline Kael, right? Pauline Kael in the 60s wrote a book. Uh, about the ownership of Citizen Kane, where, where she, you know, she put forth the theory that Citizen Kane essentially belongs to Herman Mankiewicz because he wrote the script and he wrote kind of the skeleton to Citizen Kane. And, uh, you know, with all respect to the brilliance of Pauline Kael, she was definitely a brilliant film critic. I, I disagree with her. And I think history disagrees with her, uh, factual history, that is, which is we literally have records of the changes Wells made to the script. So even from a written page perspective, Wells brought a whole other element to what Mankiewicz wrote. And I'm not even getting into the stylistic elements of the film and the inspired visuals of the film. And the fact that this movie really tries to paint Wells as an egomaniacal he might have been that, but it paints him as an egomaniacal credit hog when I really don't feel that he was. I mean, he deserves the credit for the film that he got, but he was also very, very willing to share his credit with others, particularly Greg Tolan, the cinematographer, which was unheard of at the time, Steve. Directors never pointed a finger at a cinematographer and said, here's a guy who's as responsible for this film as I am, whereas Wells went ahead and did that. So trying, as you say, to paint Wells as... um, you know, in the less than pleasant light as somebody who tried to deny Mank uh, his writing credit, I don't think I don't think suits history very well, and I don't think it's particularly honest, and I didn't particularly like it. But of course, Wells is dead, and he can't defend himself, right? So you yeah, can shit on him all you want. Well, uh, an interesting which- thing. I mean, this is a historical note, and uh, I'll I'll get to in a minute that I'm not saying this movie needed to be a documentary, but. You know, in researching both this movie and Citizen Kane, like you find out that Orson Welles had a deal with RKO that he was scheduled. You know, he was the deal said he would be the writer, the director and the star of like two movies. So he contractually had to be the writer and he kind of subcontracted out to Mankiewicz to write this movie for him. But, you know, the deal like Orson Welles, name had to be on the screenplay like that was the contract. And that was also sure. the contract Mankiewicz side like Mankiewicz agreed 
to basically be a ghostwriter for hire. That's what he agreed to. He signed the deal. And then when the screenplay right. turned out good, he's like, well, wait a minute, you know, through the encouragement of, if you believe Mank, his brother and other people, they're like, you know, you should try and change that deal and get some credit for this thing because it's really good, which I, I don't blame him for. But, I mean, if anybody was, you could argue, was reaching to get more credit, you could argue Mankiewicz was the one who was maybe more of the, like, credit hog as opposed to just doing a good job and moving on. Like, he's like, no, wait a minute. you got to kiss my ass a little bit more about this. Well, you can certainly make an argument that, that Mank was the one who was kind of in breach of his contract with Wells. But, but you know, again, there's there's shooting scripts of the film where you could clearly see the changes that Wells made to Mankiewicz you know, like a 120-page script titled The American. For starters, he changed the title of the film and made it much more iconic than just plain old American. Uh, and um, I don't know. I, I, I don't think the film, like, really bends over backwards to make Wells look like an asshole. I have to give kudos to actually many performances in, in, in Mank, which are terrific. And I think Tom Burke did a fantastic imitation of Wells. Uh, I don't know how you felt about him, but man, he was great. And there's been a lot of good actors who played Wells in the last few years. And, uh, and, and this is, this was one of the best, but this movie certainly is, I think I'm fairly critical of Wells. I, I don't think Wells comes off very well in the film. Uh, and, uh, and I don't think it's fair. And I think it's kind of revisionist. And, and again, instead of adding to the quality of Mank, I think it subtracts from the quality of Mank. I guess my only uh, discrepancy with that is that, um, I mean, I didn't think they praised Wells very much, but I kind of felt that Wells wasn't in it enough to fully get shit on you know he's kind of like a an elusive presence who pops in here and there and i very much agree with you the guy who played wells i thought did a great job um and really captured the idea of like i mean you know there's things about even if you like orson wells it's hard to deny like he had a very theatrical manner of speaking even in like interviews yeah. uh i mean yeah. i could cert i could certainly see how you know if you were around you'd be like wow this guy's kind of pompous uh and that was <laughs> That was even before he was like a fat old man in an ascot. And, you know, I, as anybody who's like 25, you're a, been on the cover of Time magazine, you're a theater genius, you go out to Hollywood. I mean, I'm sure Orson Welles was rather arrogant and depending on your point of view, overbearing, but also, Clearly. but also charismatic. And I thought the performance really captured that. Like, I love the scene where he came in and essentially a cape and a hat to talk to Mank. <laughs> and I was like, but, but that's, you know, like, that's kind of what I wanted, you know, like you almost want Orson. Well, like, I don't know, for me personally, it's like, you'd be disappointed if you, if you were like meeting Orson Wells, like you'd be kind of bummed out if he just came in like jeans and a t-shirt, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think, I think even if he were working today, he would never be seen in jeans and a t-shirt. Uh, even though in real life, I think he was rather fond of, uh, walking around in a bathrobe all day. But sure. beyond that, uh, he was a larger than life character and he clearly created this larger than life persona at a very, early age and and he clearly bought into his own publicity and into his own bullshit to some extent but again unlike a lot of people who are posers Orson Welles was actually a straight up genius and uh or certainly if you don't buy into the concept of genius quote unquote 
certainly a an extremely talented individual who was talented on many different levels and uh and again i i i I agree that he wasn't in the film enough to really be shit on but because he was only in essentially three maybe four scene stops and a couple of them were very tiny scenes just kind of like the reverse of the phone conversation uh you know the scenes he was in he was certainly not portrayed in the best light and in those scenes and that leaves a lasting impression, right? I mean, when you only have three scenes and you're a raging asshole in two of them, I mean, what's the overall perspective of the film towards that character, right? Not positive. And I, I found that rather unnecessary, to be honest with you. Again, I, I, I think once you look at the overall picture of this and Citizen Kane, uh, you know, I don't think that perspective does make any favors in my view and i am not a wells maniac i'm not one of those people who loves every single thing uh, wells has ever done but um i i don't know if he was known for screwing people to to the extent that this movie implies he's tried to screw mac yeah well i guess part of my thing is i found you know my overall impression of the movie is one of the things i just found it rather boring and so that that scene towards the very end of the movie when Mankiewicz tells Wells he wants a screenwriting credit and Wells throws things about the room. And I thought that was one of the most exciting scenes in the whole film. So that's I was disappointed that the movie was wrapping it up after that because I almost wanted more of Wells Mankiewicz butting heads because at least there was some energy there. Absolutely. And, you know, the funny thing is they work together extensively on the rewrites of Citizen Kane, you know, like, like th- that scene was really in many ways the beginning of uh, of their collaboration. And there was a collaboration. I mean, that script did not stay, you know, the behemoth that was written by Mankiewicz at the end of the film make. It, it didn't. And there was a long collaboration between them. And it would have been interesting to see that. And, and the movie completely fails on that regard and i agree with you that was sort of the you know the last for last act that was extremely deflating and i will tell you the scene before that the scene that leads up to that that the drunken monologue that mank delivers at a dinner party at william randolph hearst I thought that scene was incredibly awkward, Steve. I mean, I'm not a giant fan of the drunken monologue scenes, the, the, you know, the, the idealistic, but uh, extremely alcoholic protagonist tells it like it is to the powers that be in a state of drunken, semi-suicidal rage. I'm not a big fan of those scenes ever. But in this movie, that, that, that scene was really, really weak. And then, and, and I mean, thankfully, I thought it was somewhat saved by an excellent monologue from Charles Dance at the end of that, that sort of ended the relationship between him and Mank. Uh, I thought that was very well done. But again, I wanted more Hearst in the film. I wanted to know more about Hearst. Hearst was a fascinating character in his own right. Uh, and, and this movie just kind of muddled Hearst. Like I didn't understand what the fuck was up with Hearst. Like, did you understand Hearst from this film? Maybe not from this movie, but it's hard for me to separate, you know, what I know about him from history and other movies and from this one. And I also, um, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on that scene. I thought that scene was pretty tedious. And in some ways, the only drama I got out of that scene was just curious how long Hearst was going to put up with it. 
because, <laughs> you know, like watching Mank, like my, and I don't know, this is a, you know, if I would have felt different when I was 16 or something, but like you said, it, it didn't seem to me truth to power. It seemed to me like, wow, I'm kind of amazed they even let, let this drunken jerk inside the room. Like, uh, you know, like I thought, yeah. her, I thought Hearst would have been completely within his rights to be like, you know, get out of here. We're having a party. Uh, so to me, the only drama was like how long I found it. it the only interesting part of the scene was like, wow, why is he tolerating this? And, you know, the answer is to kind of let him just hang himself. Um, I, you know, I want to go back to some of the performances. We maybe didn't learn as much about Hearst, but Charles Dance is one of those guys who I, I've loved him forever like whenever he pops up in something i'm always delighted to see charles yeah, dance I love and him. uh you know you can make an argument that a lot of times he he's kind of similar but i just like what he brings to things um a little side note he once did a tv version of the phantom of the opera which i always considered one of the uh definitive versions of that role but um anyway charles dance so it's one of those and, and, I, and, and I was going through fincher's biography the, the filmography that is uh I realized that Charles Dance was also one of the leads in Fincher's first Hollywood film, Alien 3. Remember? He played the doctor. One of the and, first uh, times I was aware of who Charles Dance was, yes. yes. Exactly. So it was actually great to see him brought back into the Fincher universe and given some more work to do. Because, again, I think that guy doesn't get enough work. Maybe he's got some personality issues or something. Or maybe he's a hardcore alcoholic like me. But regardless, I don't want to make any... Uh, negative dispersions about Charles Dance. He was fantastic, and I wanted to see more of him in this film, not less. Uh, and I think he was entitled to be in the film more, frankly. I mean, seeing how he was the subject of the script, right? Like, why, did we, why didn't we get more of Mank? Why did we get so much of Louis B. Mayer? Well, I, I would argue that more his... Um, I don't know. I, I didn't. That part didn't bother me as much because I got the sense that, and maybe this was accurate, that Maybe Mank and Hearst weren't really all that close. Like, Mank was just in Hearst's orbit, but they didn't necessarily have a ton of, like, one-on-one -on -one interactions. And it made it, you know, the movie made it seem like Mank's biggest friendship in that regard was with Marion Davies. And I have to say, I thought going to, I thought Amanda Seyfried, that's my favorite performance of hers. And I kind of was bummed out that the movie wasn't better because I thought she was fantastic. And, uh, you know, she's been around and all sorts of things from Mean Girls on. I've often been kind of um, lukewarm about her, like uh, neither blown away nor hate her. But uh, I thought she was great in this. And so this, yeah, the, the, scene, the scenes of her and Mank, I thought, were usually quite lovely and in some ways some of the best, you know, quieter moments of the film. Yeah, agreed. That, 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 those are some of the best scenes of the film. And I will say that the film is actually full of scenes, individual scenes that are really crackling. But again, it's less than the sum of its parts somehow. You know, it, it, it just it's it's like almost the reverse of Citizen Kane itself, where, you know, some of the individual scenes in Kane can be a little clunky sometimes and certainly of their time. And some stuff doesn't work particularly well. Uh, I'm not going to get into the in-depth uh, Citizen Kane review, but Citizen Kane is more than the sum of its parts when you put it all together. It's pretty good. You should... remark remarkably well. It's a pretty good movie, Andre. You should check it out sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to, it, it is. Maybe we'll do a special Citizen Kane review. But the point is, this movie is less than the sum of, sum of its parts, because while it does have very good individual scenes and very good individual performances, as a whole, 
it doesn't really amount to much. And, and I was amazed by how little I thought of the film until I started discussing it with other people. And when I would discuss it with other people, and some of these people are Wells fanatics, some of these people are film historians, and we, you and I talked about it a little bit. I talked to my brother quite a bit about the film. And again, it just, when you put it all together, it just doesn't quite click. And I think, well, I think at this point we have to talk about Gary Oldman, Steve. I mean, what do you think about the main performer in the film, the guy who plays Mank? Gary fucking Oldman. Here's my thing about Gary Oldman. I love Gary Oldman in general. And in some ways, I kind of really liked him in this movie, but he was not, he's too old for the role. So while I wound up kind of enjoying Gary Oldman's portrayal of Mank, I don't know that it was right for whatever they were trying to do. But I have to say, I enjoy Gary Oldman quite a bit. So I, in some ways, I was delighted to just hang out with Gary Oldman. And I did find him kind of charming, you know, and his uh, he gets the funniest lines in the movie. And as sure. I just mentioned, the scenes of him and Amanda Seyfried together, I thought were really good. So I, uh, and I certainly bought him as a drunk, Gary Oldman, who unfortunately <laughs> went through large parts of his life as a drunk. Um, sure, so I don't quite know. I, I know there's been a lot of criticism about his age and you can get to your, what you thought of Gary Oldman, but I have to say my problems with Mank were not with Gary Oldman, that I felt like if the movie was structured better, um, that Gary Oldman's would have been just fine in the role. But what do you think, Andre? Well, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say that while I do love Gary Oldman and, and generally Gary Oldman is the best thing in most of the movies he's in, um, even when he's not the main character, I think he was miscast in this film. Uh, I think he is too old, but I thought, I thought his age was like the least of his issues. I mean, to me, the biggest, his biggest issues are, well, I mean, you're not going to expect much of looking like Herman J. Mankiewicz. If you've seen pictures of Herman J. Mankiewicz, you know, uh, I can see why they would have trouble casting that guy if they were going by the physical, but Gary Oldman, besides being too old, is also too English and also not ethnic enough. I mean, Herman J. Benkovich was a very Jewish guy and Gary Oldman is very not. And uh, Gary Oldman's accent keep, kept slipping in and out. And I found Gary Oldman's uh, kind of rhythms, the way he delivered the dialogue, like sometimes it was so dead on and other times it was really not dead on. So I found his performance kind of uh, all over the place and I found his accent kind of all over the place. And sometimes it took me out of the film. And honestly, I throughout watching the film both times, I felt like ultimately he was kind of miscast. I think they, they, they could have cast that character better and it would have worked better, but I think they needed a star. So they got Gary Oldman. Uh, and, um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say Gary Oldman is the least of the film's problems. I would put him right up there with the film's problems, Steve. And I'm. I hate to say that. I mean, I think part of my thing is just that I am fairly ignorant of, uh, like most of what I know about Herman J. Mankiewicz is just his contributions to Citizen Kane and things I've read. But I'm not very. You know, I, I'd have to Google like what he looked like, what he sounded like. I don't know any of that. So therefore, I brought less historical or personal knowledge to it. So then I was just accepting this character Gary Oldman created. 
So then I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then the only way is in some ways he seemed too old to me was that, and you know, this is a age old Hollywood problem is that I, I was supposed to somehow believe that he'd have a long standing marriage with a woman who looked to be about 30. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. That, and that, that is a problem all over the place. If you see a picture of Herman J. Mankovich from that time period, he does look way older than a man in his 40s does today. A man in his 40s today looks way younger than a man in his 40s looked back in the 40s. Uh, and that has to do with styles and grooming and diet and the amount of cigarettes and alcohol they consume back. Yeah. Back I mean, then. the. But, uh, the biggest thing I heard about the age issue, which I, I have to double check me on this, but I believe Herman Mankiewicz and Marion Davies were the same age. Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, it was ridiculous. And, and, and those scenes were ridiculous. I mean, he's old enough to be her father, clearly. And I'm talking about Gary Oldman, whereas yes. Mank, Mank himself uh, was not. But 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 also Amanda Seyfried seems to be younger than Marion Davies was at the time the film is set in. So yeah, by the time that they're dealing with those sequences, uh, Marion Davies is already uh, kind of on the tail end of her Hollywood career, which was actually significant. Uh, and, uh, you know, and obviously Herman was younger than Gary Oldman is now, which is, you know, what is he in the sixties? Uh, again, those, those may be minor, minor quabbles, uh, you know, for any movie, Steve, obviously, you know, men are always playing people way younger than they're actually than their actual age. And women are unfortunately always playing older than their actual age. And when they actually do get to that age, well, their their roles start all of a sudden uh, disappearing. Yes, uh, it's the age old that. Uh, yes, they they cast actresses in their mid 20s to be anybody from a 16 year old to a 38 year old. But um yeah, but but it was really pronounced with her and Oldman. Absolutely, it was really really pronounced with her and Oldman. But again, even besides the age thing, I mean, didn't you, weren't you distracted by the fact that his accent keep coming and going? I mean, sometimes he didn't even bother not to have a British accent. I mean, there's scenes, and again, on the second viewing, it really struck me. Like, I mean, there's scenes in it where he's just speaking with his normal Gary Oldman accent, and then other scenes, he's kind of talking. He's talking in some kind of a New Yorkish thing, which is way doesn't work and at other times he just delivers stuff like like a character from movies in the 30s which theoretically would have worked if that was consistent but it wasn't uh and um i don't know again it threw me off i'm not a big fan of oldman in that role i think uh i think it could have done better uh, as far as the casting of the film i know it's weird to say that about one of the greatest actors working today but that's that's just how this struck me and it struck me both times i've seen it as much as I love Gary Oldman, didn't work for me in this film. Andre, what did you think about some of the the curious technique of using the most modern film technology available to try to make this movie seem like it was an old movie? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the cinematography obviously stands out. It's in black and white, of course. But then also, um, I was very attuned, you know, as a sound guy to the way the the movie sounded like, you know, they purposely made the dialogue sound uh, like an old movie. And again, they didn't use old recording techniques or anything like that. They used modern microphones and then in post tried to make it sound more like a mono old 
uh, soundtrack. Uh, I really kind of disliked that aspect of it. That I'm, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit like, uh, is there a reason it needs to be harder to hear? I don't understand. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what did you think about you know the the style of the way it was shot and edited and things like that? Well, I mean, the, the film is beautiful and, you know, obviously David Fincher is known for beautiful images in his films. I mean, this is beautiful black and white, but it's, it's, you know, presented in a modern aspect ratio, which is a little bit of a disconnect. You know, it seems like if you're going for the look of a movie from the thirties and forties, you know, shouldn't it be in the old Academy four, three ratio instead of a modern, modern ratio? Um, that, that I found that a little bit weird. Uh, you know, you know, again, the black and white looked beautiful, uh, and the sound, which was, uh, it was noticeably mono, right? They mixed it down to mono, but they still retained the, the, the Dolby, uh, like 5.1 and kind of added this echo to, uh, to sort of have a fake, theatrical experience you know how sometimes when you're in the movie theater there's an echo sure from the front speakers that then comes back at you creating this you know the slight delayed sound and they use that to i mean they use that extensively in this in this film and i think that was part of the audio effect that they were going going for so it was mono with an echo <laughs> you know this was their approximation of 40 sound i don't know steve i don't know why it was necessary why was that necessary i mean like yeah i enjoy, i love black and white movies i think more movies should be black and white when it's appropriate but did it really make sense in this film you know it was nice to look at it was well shot this guy eric messerschmidt did a really awesome job i thought was it the best black and white modern black and white movie i've seen fuck no yeah. <laughs> Not even close. you know so again it was artifice it added artifice to the proceedings that arguably didn't need artifice that needed to actually be more realistic um you know uh, again i don't think you know, while aesthetically pretty to look at, I don't think it really added anything to the material, in my opinion. And sort of the style of the way people talked and the coverage and, you know, some of the way it was shot was done to sort of imitate movies from the 30s and 40s, particularly 30s, uh, but not necessarily to imitate Citizen Kane, right? There weren't any explicit call-outs to the actual well, Stolen cinematography. Uh, right? I might push back on that a little bit. I mean, like, there weren't, like, an homage scene or anything, but they certainly had some of the low-angle, deep-focus cinematography that yeah, was very prominent yeah. in Citizen Kane. Especially yeah, but but the, it was prominent in all movies at that time. Though. I don't know uh, about well, that. I don't know. I was thinking specifically there's a bunch of scenes of Mankiewicz in bed with like him in in the foreground with, you know, propped up in bed and then someone in the far corner of the room who, you know, they walk far away from Mankiewicz, but they're still in focus and part of the scene. And then they come in closer. And I found that extremely reminiscent of Susan Kane. Uh, we, I recently rewatched Susan Kane, showed my son it for the first time. And, um, uh, my wife couldn't remember she'd ever seen it. And, uh, I pointed that out that to me, that was always one of the big innovations of Susan Kane was the, ex um, ex not extreme, but very large depth of field. Like that was an innovation yeah. of, uh, both Wells and Greg Tolan, the cinematographer. So I, I did think there were some, I I thought the way Mank was shot had some deliberate callbacks to how Citizen Kane was shot. 
Uh, specifically, yeah, like the, the lower <laughs> ankle. And I, I'm not saying like Wells was the only person who did that, but I I do think my knowledge of cinema history, maybe I'm wrong, is that some of those deep focus, low angle shots that Wells and Tolland essentially invented and that maybe they became more prominent after Citizen Kane. Right, right. Well, Citizen Kane was extremely influential aesthetically, right, from in terms of cinematography. So we can certainly argue back and forth about who invented what. I mean, deep focus cinematography existed. What Wells and Tolan did extensively on Citizen Kane was use longer takes and more wider lenses. And with wider lenses, of course, it's much easier to achieve deep focus. Uh, and uh, and that's what the film really did very well. It would play these long scenes in this very wide lens with deep focus cinematography action taking in the, in the foreground and background simultaneously. And, and that was kind of different in approach, not technically. Uh, it's been used in other films, but in other films of the time, very rarely do you see a wide shot that holds and plays in different planes simultaneously for you know, let's say a three minute scenes and you, and those scenes are all over the place in Citizen Kane. So again, Citizen Kane, very influential. This movie certainly use, use some of those techniques, but the fact is everybody uses these techniques now. I mean, the, the scenes played out in wide angle lens with, you know, with foreground background action that you see that in every movie and every TV show. So uh, it's easy to take Citizen Kane for granted because everybody rips it off not knowingly or unknowingly. <laughs> so yeah. uh, th this movie, again, try to sort of uh, temper that a little bit. And, and you know, I, I don't want to criticize it too much for not going further with that. It, it, but, you know, again, it's a movie that's shot in black and white that has, you know, explicitly trying to mirror some of the looks of an older film, Citizen Kane being an older film as well. And, um, and it was weird, you know, it was a little bit of a, of a mishmash to me, you know, like, what is it trying? Is it trying to, to push the artifice? Is it trying to, to be more, you know, more modernistic in some of its treatments of, uh, of characters and so on and so forth? I don't know. I, I mean, again, the film just struck me as a giant defense of Herman Mankiewicz's script betraying his friends. I mean, that's, it seems to be to exist only with that in mind. And, uh, you know, God bless. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that Mank, the guy gets some kind of a redemption or maybe even a heroic stance with a, with a big picture like Mank, but that doesn't make, make Mank a better film in my view. And uh, it's unfortunate because again, I generally like David Fincher. I don't, I don't think he's the greatest American filmmaker or anything like that, but, but I do like his work, a lot of his work. Uh, and uh, this to me, unfortunately lands towards the bottom of the heap. Yeah. I was going through his filmography. Yeah. And I, uh, it, it's not his worst movie, but I certainly put it in like the bottom half. Um, what, what do you For think sure. is uh, what's your favorite Fincher movie? You know, his early ones are my favorites, but I would say his top three films are between Seven, Fight Club, and uh, The Social Network. I think those are his top three films, and it, it, on different days, I'm going to put 
different ones on top of that. But I think like as a director, he's most in control in those three films and uh, everything else is a little bit hit or miss. You know, it's uh, interesting. Those are like, I'd make those my two, three and four, but I, I think my favorite of his is actually Zodiac. Yeah. Zodiac would be my four. Yeah. So- Zodiac would be my four. I, I, you know, I, I think Zodiac gets a little, drawn out in parts, but, but I do, I do like Zodiac a lot. Uh, So, you know, so, so that would, that, you know, including Zodiac, those three that I mentioned would be the top in the top. And this one would be near the bottom, man. This would, this would be, you know, I probably like it better than the game or panic room. And probably I like it better than alien three, which barely is a Fincher film, but um, I was, I was hoping for better, but this is what we get. (laughs) <laughs> 2020's disappointments continue with mank yes yes a little bit and 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 again like i think i think a question needs to be asked is david fincher overrated as a director you know i was going looking at his movies and there's a decent argument um you know he's made a lot of stuff i really like and including you know um i don't know about you i like this series mind hunter that uh was on netflix that he sure. had you know, he didn't do all of it, but he certainly had a, a large hand in it. Um, Absolutely. Well, he was the executive producer. It has his vibe. And it's well, a wonderful series. he's, yeah. I don't know how I put it. In some ways, he's the most gifted storyteller of these like music video directors, but that doesn't mean he's not, I don't, it's almost like he's still to me a little bit of a style over substance guy. And that, if you look at all his movies, they're all gorgeous. They all look really good, but a lot of them, you know, it's kind of like, well, it looks beautiful and it flows nicely, but it's not, there's not a lot going on there. Yeah, I would agree with that. He, he is a style over substance guy who desperately wants to be a substance over style guy. And, and, and it, invariably it trips him up but but there are instances where he was able to combine the two pretty well and and again i named those instances particularly being films like zodiac and 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 particularly social network which is a very pertinent film still uh fight club is of its time but it had certainly hit the the bullseye in its time and still holds up as a picture and uh and seven is just a killer serial killer movie it's still effective it's still creepy and and you know it works it still works uh but he's always trying to be more intellectually deep than i think he actually is so you know I, i think it's a weakness yeah i will say um one of the skills i very much admire about him though is that he's this almost sounds like a put down but actually means a high compliment he is very good with exposition in terms of giving the audience some kind of convoluted, complicated info without it being confusing. And uh, with the exception of Mank, I thought Mank was a little confusing. But I think of things like the social network and even parts of the girl with the dragon tattoo, there's like, you know, I read that book and it's kind of a pulpy, not great book. But there's a scene where, you know, the writer arrives in the little network of the family and the various houses and you have to explain who lives in what house and what, you know, this relative lives there. And Fincher stages it brilliantly and it's just a way that I don't know he has a good skill about if if he was ever say making a movie of a non-fiction book 
I would be interested in that because I think he would have a great handle on the material that he's, I don't know, he's just, he has a good way of conveying information that's both cinematic and interesting without being boring. So I give him, give him a lot of props for that because that's, that's tricky. Like not everybody can do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, he's, he's an excellent filmmaker. I mean, he is unquestionably one of our best filmmakers, but he's not in the top two, you know, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think clearly you could point at guys like Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino as superior directors, both from a perspective of individuality and having a voice of their own. Uh, and certainly once you get into guys like the Coen brothers, uh, you know, and, you know, older guys like Scorsese and stuff. That's, I mean, you're definitely, uh, those guys are definitely better than him. So, uh, so again, uh, an, un, to me, an unfortunate, uh, miscue from David Fincher on the Mank film and, uh, you know, not great addition to his, uh, filmography, but who knows this year, it may be end up being best picture, uh, in the Oscar race, right? Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't, surprise me it's uh you know it is there's an old cliche of the oscars which is true which is that the oscars love movies about old movies um yeah. i mean it's a cliche but it's it's not always true like you you see that and then sometimes you make your bets and that doesn't plan out but i i'm kind of expecting it to be nominated for best picture to be honest like uh i i'd kind of be surprised if it wasn't not sure. No, no, it's it's going to get nominated. It is definitely going to get nominated. Yeah. And also it's going to get nominated because it's, you know, and, and this, this is not the first time this is happening. It's kind of the second year in a row that this is happening because we had a made for Netflix movie called the Irishman uh, that came out last year that Scorsese directed. And that of course was nominated for, for the Academy award too. And, you know, ended up kind of losing everything. We'll see how this film does. Uh, there's a little bit of a prejudice against the, uh, these kind of straight to streaming films, but, the world we live in now that may be the cinema experience of the future yeah i would have to imagine that the uh the bias against netflix produced movies would not be as significant this year yeah and i hope it doesn't because you know because that again this may be the reality of the world we live in so there's no reason to hold you know straight to streaming against a film of quality and Mank is still a film of quality. Certainly, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be discussing it. It's not junk. It's just a less than successful uh, picture, in my opinion. And uh, and uh, that's that's really all I got, buddy. It's all I got. Yeah, they got set. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, now we can get back to our continued drive through the cinema of the eighties with a clear, clear mind. But if something incredibly, you know, stunning comes out between now and our end of the salute of the eighties, uh, we will, we will bring it to our, uh, you know, foaming at the mouth audience. That's right. There's no rules. There's no rules. We set our own rules, except rules of the road, of course, uh, which we follow very strictly. <laughs> uh well that's all i got buddy that's all i got uh wishing you happy holidays uh, and wishing all our listeners happy holidays uh i'm andre shane i'm steve askin see you next year